This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. As we continue our mini-series on business and neurosurgery, I want to bring back Jim Harrop. Jim's been on our show before. Jim is the director of spine at the uh, Thomas Jefferson University. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Mike. It's great to have you in Philadelphia where we're having our AAAS meeting. Yeah, great to be in person, right? So, um, you know, most of the folks we're interviewing actually have an MBA, but you recently went and got a master's but in healthcare administration, right? Uh, actually, it's in quality improvement. Okay, so tell us about that, where you did it, how you thought about it, and what the degree really is. So as you probably realize, there's a lot of interest in medicine and processes. And so if you step back and look and, you know, we always try to emulate something that's successful. In the airline industry as a financial model, probably not great. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a pace, as safety organization, there's never any plane crashes anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the airline industry did one of the greatest things and did a 360, not a 360, a 180 in the direction where they're going. And I'm going to really quickly summarize what they found. They found that in order to work the best, every member of a team has to be empowered and you can't have the overpowering one person leading the ship because often they don't see everything. And so you need to have multiple people looking at different angles in order to get the best outcomes. And so in medicine, there's been a big switch you know, the um, Joint Commission's done this. Your local hospital, if you step back and think about it, you probably didn't know what a PSI was 10 years ago, but everyone now knows what you know patient safety indicator is. And so there's been a great look at how do we make patient safety the most important thing and do this through processes. Okay, so tell us about like where you did the study, where you, where you got your master's, what the degree is in, what's it, what's it called? Um, it's a master's in uh, patient safety and healthcare quality. Um, what I did is, is, and just going back as I was talking about, Jefferson is uh, somewhat innovative, and probably about five years ago, they started looking at what they considered uh, physician championships or leaders in the hospital, and they said, we want to educate these people how to be more team-oriented. They put a course on, and they had one or two people, uh, faculty members, volunteer for a course. Uh, it was a, it was a, essentially sort of like a lot of people do their masters every Friday um, and meet in person once a month, but then we did online things and uh, PowerPoints and web-based uh, lectures throughout the, the year. Um, it turned out that as I did this, I said, wow, I really like this. And if you step back and, and look at what you've done in terms of research, a lot of, at least for me, have been Uh, patient safety directed research. For example, I've written a lot about infections. How do we reduce infections? Um, And for me, it fit in great. And I said, this is really what I want to do. I'm not that interested in finance. Uh, I was a math major and I used to run the financial department for the department. And I never felt like, wow, I'm missing a lot or I needed a lot. And so as as I was spending time thinking about, okay, what can I do more? My kids have just left my house. It's either get a new wife, a new car, or a new degree. <laughs> right. So, so 
You're right, because when you do clinical research, as we all do, a lot of what you're really talking about is how do we do surgery better or safer or more effectively, right? So that, that's an excellent point. So this was, was it a cadre of professors that came through this program together? Yeah, so every department, and it's funny, this is before we had what they call quality, uh, quality chiefs or uh, QI chiefs for each division. In, I don't know, Miami, if you have someone that most hospitals now have an individual in the department who they define as the quality chief for the department. And what you do is you tend to get a lot of information from the hospital. Um, the hospital, many you might not know, tracks a lot of patient safety indicators. And so when your infections spike, they need to look at it, why it happened and how to prevent it. Um, so we didn't have, have one at our time, but there were certain people interested in different things. For example, Asheron and myself both did it in our department. But each, each department had a specific person um, where we came together. And you asked me the question I didn't answer you totally before. What happened was is I really liked the quality improvement stuff. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the year, they said, um, okay, you guys finish this course. If you want to go on to your master's, you can do it in two years. You got to get X many credits. And as it turns out, Jefferson had a, uh, a tuition program. And so it was essentially cheap. Or, or free. And I figured I might as well just get the whole master's. So you got the degree from Thomas Jefferson? Got it from Thomas Jefferson. And what, what department does it live in? So Jefferson, actually, there's a guy named David Nash who appears, anyone's into patient safety might recognize the name. He was an internist at Jefferson probably about 20, 25 years ago, and he started the Division of Public Safety. So Jefferson has a whole community public safety uh, college. Um, it's extremely well done. It's mostly aimed at the busy healthcare professional. Although in my MBA, in my uh, my course for my master's, we had people from all over the country, um, which is great because the more uh, different perspectives you have, the better you you grow. Mm. So if you're looking for a quality improvement program, I would tell you I think the Jefferson program is extremely well done. It's set up to do. You know, I didn't change my life at all. I took one Sunday and I actually just worked at home all day Sunday and then did most of the things email and at night but was able to keep my clinical practice going. And is this in the School of Education or School of Medicine or Business School? Uh, School of Public Health. School of Public Health. Okay. Okay, great. And are there other similar programs in other universities that you've yeah, heard of? They're, they're, so it's not an official designated title such as an MBA. They're lobbying to get its own title. Technically, I have a, um, a master's in I think it's patient safety or a master's degree, um, but it's it's recognized more so as as times going on. And actually, they have a convention now and a conference, and so it's it's a pretty big deal. Now, it, if you look at the cadre of people that are doing this at Thomas Jefferson, are they all doctors, or do you have nurses doing this and so PAs? That, and- so that's a great question. We were the first people that did it, mm. and it was so successful. It's now gone everywhere. Because, again, it's sort of, if you just go back to my earlier statement, you can't just empower the doctors to take care of a problem. You need every person to be empowered. And so the nurses uh, are very involved in it. And Jefferson has a whole reporting system for uh, adverse events, which has grown out of it. It's, you know, it's very interesting because, as you indicated at the beginning, and this is all new to me, um, I don't think that if you were to do an MBA as a physician and then go back to your institution, that you would have much experience or focus on exactly what you're talking about. And, and that's, and to me, it's exactly what you said is why I said, well, I can get an MBA and I can learn about supply and demand 
And I go, but is it really going to help me and my patients down the road? If you said, I want to be a chairman or I want to deal with financial things, or even if you want to be a CMO, I think an MBA is a great idea. I want to take care of patients and I want to make the world a better place. And so I said, how can I be more organized? And it was very, very insightful to me, all these different uh, avenues and tools that opened up my eyes. So can you give me some concrete examples or at least one example of how having done this training and gotten this degree maybe made you better in the role you live in, which is as a leader, as a physician, as a champion, as you say, at Thomas Jefferson? So I think you know, one, of the, one of the subsets where you can do this is a lot about leadership. And I think what you have to do is, A, realize self-reflection is a good thing. Two is realize that you can't expect every individual to be you. You have to look at everyone on your team and say, what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses? And you help them with their strengths and try to you know, help them with their weaknesses and push them towards their strength. So I think that was one thing that kind of, it sounds obvious, but I think it really points out when you look at individuals and how people break out to where they are and try to individualize everyone. The second thing that's, again, sounds so obvious is I never did it before, but now when you're starting a study, you have to make, you got to know what they call your shareholders or your stakeholders. What is my stakeholder and where is their involvement in this project? Are they going to help me? Are they going to not help me? And line up who's your friends and who are your people who are not going to be your friends and try to uh, understand that because you need to meet the people that are going to be against you join your team. And so there's a lot of different tools like that and, and uh, different ways to look at charts. I redid my old statistics again, which I thought was, you know, I, I learned so much about statistics the second time I took it. Uh, and using Excel, the world is so much different than when, you know, I, I was a math major. And so when I took Excel, I think we did it on, an, uh, we did pen and paper, but now it's right. a, an abacus. Right. But now, right. But now it's like, it's, it's, Excel is so freaking powerful. Um, we used to use something called the uh, SAS, which is, you don't need it now to do stats and unbelievable stats. Yeah, so what what kind of application is there for statistics in this kind of field? Like, are you using it to track or predict adverse events? I mean, how do you use it in this type so of environment? So you can use it, um, like one of the things when we did our stats things, we, we pulled out, uh, we used a huge publicly available uh, Philadelphia ledger. And then we went through it and they would teach you, okay, how do you look for things? How do you drop out different things? Uh, you know, manipulating a big data uh, in order to uh, find out what you uh, find out what you want to do, and then the other thing that again, uh, my naivete was shocking to myself is how you can take very easily data and make a graph. And to me, is some people are visual learners, some people are are uh, uh, like numbers. I love seeing a graph and think I can figure out a problem a lot better. So that was just one little thing, and, and I'll tell you, if, if, as an aside, anyone who's listening, if you haven't taken a stat course in ten years probably should do it every 10 years because I think it's one of these things you you know you always forget and you and I are reviewers so we use it a lot mm-hmm. but I, it really really came back a lot of the things I, I learned so you know it's as you're telling me about this it almost sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong here it almost sounds like for a surgeon anyways in this role you're almost doing operations research it's like you're looking at the processes of healthcare delivery it, it's you are 100% spot on it is exactly that it is about making a process more efficient and trying to make it. And then on top of that, you can say, okay, I'm going to make this process efficient. But then you can say also, I want to make this process cost effective. 
And so there's multiple different layers. Mm. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. I did a project where we used, believe it or not, for an anterior cervical fusion, 12 trays. So 12 trays came into the operator. And, and you're like, well, how the hell did it ever happen? And the reason is we have 14 different surgeons. The OR nurses think every surgeon is the best, and they're all crazy. So they and the surgeons think they're the best. Well, surgeons think they're the best, yeah. and the OR nurses know they're not. But it's funny, but they... The deal is this, is they never want it to be not have it for a surgeon. So Mike Wang likes to use this curate. Jim Eric likes that curate. And so over the years, it grew up to 12 things. And so we took the three busiest surgeons and we said, we watched them. And we had someone mark everything they used for like a two-week period. Turned out about 60 ACDFs they did. Uh, And we said, okay, three trays. Dropped it down to three. And you're like, okay, that doesn't sound like that great. So... Jefferson does about 6,000 spine cases a year. So if you say 2,000 of them are cervical, 1,000, we'll just make it up numbers, are anterior cervicals. Right. Nine trays I saved. So that's 9,000 trays. The cost of a flashing of a tray is $85. Oh, I thought it was like $150. It might be in Miami. This is, uh, yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's, but it's, it's not cheap. It's not it's cheap. Not, it's not I was going to say about $100, but it, I mean, you're, 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 you know, that's almost a million dollars of saving. Plus, you know, what I also saw is the SPD people loved us that's yeah. what we have the people that uh, clean our trays because right. now they're only doing and there's something called bio burden our bio burden went to zero so for the spine cases we haven't had bio burden and i think it's because they're so much more explain efficient. that explain bio burden so bio burden is when you go through the process of sterilization occasionally you'll get some grunge which is most likely remnants of human test flesh or, or okay. product that goes through the sterilizing system and it sort of cooks it and burns it but does it really clean it because there's still a remnant on the trays? Yeah. Uh, and they refer to that bio burden. Our numbers were not, uh, and I'm not going to say they're bad, but they were higher than I think we wanted them. And so once we've changed that trace system, now we've done it to several other procedures. Uh, it was funny. We had 12 weeks of having zero bio burden. Uh, and I went to a meeting yesterday, and of course, when someone said 12 weeks, someone said, oh, I just got my first one today. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's just, but it's, it's, it's amazing. I yeah, think, I think about like all the folks like our techs who have to lift these trays. Yep. I think about the waste uh, material, the wraps, the detergent used to wash. I think about every time you sterilize something, you actually damage it a bit. Yep. And, and so there is real cost, not only financial, but to the environment and to humans, right? So, that, so you, you, through a process, have made that better. Now, but did you run into to, to headwinds? Did you run into people saying, well, now I don't have my whatever instrument I need today because yeah. Dr. Harrop decided he's not going to sterilize his stuff. And so it's, and that goes back to what we were talking about before with your stakeholders and see where everyone is. Mm-hmm. Like we knew the nurses would be on board. We knew SBD was on and we knew some of the surgeons would not be on. And the greatest thing about Jefferson and one of the things I really like about it is the surgeons are, the spine surgeons are very evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And so when they said, Hey, listen, I don't have my X. We said, you tell us what you want. We'll peel pack them, but here's why. And we showed them, okay, we're, we have a million dollars extra to buy you your Jackson table. Yeah. And it wasn't like we're taking this money and it's going to the casino. I mean, it's taking this money and pumping it back into the hospital to make the place better for our patients. So, so everyone was very supportive. So your, your buddy, your colleague, Alex Vaccaro, who many people know, right? He, he went and got an MBA, right? Yes. Not, not too long. I want to say like eight or nine years he ago. He did that right before. Actually, it was funny because I signed up for the MBA. I was going to do it with him. Okay. And then I said to myself... 
He cheated off of you the whole time, right? We actually cheated off his research assistant, but uh, we're not recording that. <laughs> Sorry, <are we? laughs> no, it's okay. We Alex is a good friend. We're just joking about Alex. He's brilliant. But so he he went and did an MBA, right? And you well, did actually right? him. Uh, Josh Heller, who's one of my partners, did it. Uh, Kevin Judy's gotten into one. Robert Rosenwasser's gotten one. I mean, wow, it seems. Guys, so, I think a lot of guys have gotten a, a, an MBA. And at Wharton, or uh, I know some of them got it from Temple. Um, I know just a little story about Alex. When you see him next time, ask him what happened to the dean um, of the business school. At the business school okay. at Temple. <laughs> <laughs> and, don't, and by the way, no one looked that up because it's not very good. But the, the deal goes something like this is a lot of guys were, were looking, at, uh, looking at actually girls too because uh, uh, staff Sumas Karras, who's one of my partners, is actually getting her MBA now. And so I think you get to a point where you're looking to do out, branch out in different areas, which I totally applaud everyone for. And I guess my question is, is what's your goal to do with that? Because a lot of our, our faculty members have gotten MBAs. But I'm not sure they're using it as fully yeah, as I can. Right. So this is what I was going to ask you about. So you did this degree. I'm just going to call it it's a master's of science, I assume. Yeah, master's. Uh, yeah, Science and quality, right? And so you, you, you spent the time to do that. And you actually spent a lot of time to get that degree and credential and all that. And then you weigh that against like what I was going to ask you is Alice went and did an MBA. And like you guys must talk about it like you must be. Oh, you should have done an MBA, right? Like what do you feel like? Make the pitch for one versus the other, you know? So I think it goes back to everyone's got to look at what they want. Uh, Alex actually went on to be chairman of the department. And financially, I think it does help him. Um, and for me, uh, I wasn't that interested in being a financial guy. I actually used it. and I wrote a paper about um, quality improvement in lumbar spine surgery. Uh-huh. And so I, I think to me, it A, helped me realign my, my research program. So I, re, I reorganized my whole research program now. Um, it's really helped me think about research projects better. It's made me statistically better. Uh, and I think it's helped me with my interactions with, with individuals. So for me, in retrospect, I believe it was the right choice. That doesn't mean I won't get bored in five years and say, hey, I want to get an MBA. But at this point in my life, I just really want to operate, do research, and make the world a better place. So, so do you get like a Six Sigma black belt or green belt when you do this? It sounds a lot like... I mean, it's obviously much more expansive than that, right? But it sounds like it has some a shared quality to that process. Um, Six Sigma is part of it. And okay. you know what the Six Sigmas are? Yeah, explain yeah. it because I, I, I've looked into it so, a lot. I so, like it a lot. So it's, um, the Six Sigma is, is basically um, what they, they wanted to do was Toyota came up with it. And it's the way to look at processes. And to be Six Sigma, that means you have one error per a million. Mm-hmm. Uh, six zeros. Six zeros. Yeah. And so that's where Toyota wanted to be. Right, so the sigma meaning is standard deviation, yep. so to speak. So no errors, you make a million nuts or bolts, you make a million Excellent. screws, and only one in a million is going to be wrong. And so now you go to right. healthcare. Right. We're about two sigmas. Right? If that. Because I mean, you, you, maybe yeah. we're doing one in a hundred. Now, I'm, I'm just thinking maybe, maybe infections. But it's, but, but it's like we really, we really need to do a lot better. We're nowhere near one million. Um, and so it's just that's one of the things they talk about and, and processes. And engineering, airlines... Uh, nuclear power plants, these what they call high utility, uh, high performing companies 
is really what a lot of medicine's trying to model themselves on. But let me bring it back to that because uh, the Toyota family, if people aren't familiar with, you know, the Japanese cars, when they first came out, people made fun of them and then they became so reliable. Now the Koreans have gone through that. People used to laugh at Hyundais and Kias and now they're made as well, if not better, some would say, than German cars, right? And the idea being that they would make parts for cars and assemble them and have such a low error rate that it translated into, I mean, you know, that's why, I mean, we joke that the terrorists used the Toyota Hilux, right? The Toyota, uh, it's, it's, what is it? It's a Tacoma? It's basically Tacoma, a Toyota yeah. Tacoma truck. And they mount a 50 caliber machine gun on the back and they drive it around and it doesn't break down, right? In the yeah. desert, right? And so, so the, it's credited with a lot of advancements. But one of the things the Toyota company does is they, I heard they never change more than 1% of the car on any production cycle. In other words, they don't, like yeah. Americans, like we're gonna design a whole new Cadillac, yeah. and then it's got all these problems, right? So they never tweak it too much in any one evolution process, right? Because the stuff that works, works, right? <coughs> so how does that apply to you guys, like in healthcare? So, and I'm gonna spin what you said a little differently because it's not all about the engineering, mm-hmm. it's about the people. Mm-hmm. And so what you're sort of saying, and I'll try to say it, I think is, is right. You need to have the team work together as a, as a group. And so if you change the whole car, you got all new people in there, new interactions. Um, you know, one of the things we don't do great with healthcare is treat everyone equally mm-hmm. in terms of, okay, you know, I'm sure your house does, your hospital does timeouts. Right. And timeouts are very interesting because I'll be honest with you, the reason they work in the airline industry is everyone takes them extremely seriously mm-hmm. and they read the timeout. Now, if you're like me, which I got to tell you is an area I need to improve in, I do it by memory. The single biggest thing the airline pilots will tell you is you never can do it by memory because your memory is a fault impulse. So we as humans... fallible. Fallible. So everything we do as humans is error prone. You have to take what we do naturally out of the system. And that's what the airline industry did. That's what Honda did. And that's what they did with their programs. So they don't change everything overnight. Because why? Because there's less chance of someone having a human error. See, I always, okay, now maybe you can convince me otherwise, because last time you were on, we were talking about airlines and all that, and it gets to me because I hate timeouts, not because I don't think they're a good thing. I hate them because I always say that, look, this, like, my goal is to try to have reviewed everything the night before and the morning of. And, and like, if I, I tell patients, if I come in the admitting area and I don't recognize you and you don't recognize me, we got a bigger problem. And you're the right? classic Korean pilot that put the freaking plane <laughs> down in New York City. Right, right. Because this is, yeah, I don't know if you ever heard this story. This I is heard good. it, yeah. Because the guy was, uh, he's a Korean pilot, and the Korean culture is the boss is never wrong. Right. And so they're flying around. And everyone knew it was running out of fuel, right? Except for the pilot, because he was so concentrating on looking where the air, where to land the plane. And so, guess what happened? The plane ran out of fuel, and everyone died. Right. And so you are sort of well. I'm the pilot, and I did everything right, and I reviewed the patient's films, and I know exactly what we're doing. Right. The point is, is you're only you know the the eye only sees what the mind knows. I guess and the, my pushback is something more like this. Like, if the surgeon's going to screw it up and, you know, like you take the wrong leg off, kind of, thing. you amputate the wrong leg, right? Yep. It doesn't matter if the nurse said, oh, we're doing the right leg. But right? let me ask you this. Well, if the nurse said to you, uh, Dr. Wang, um, you're, you're, aren't you supposed to be doing the left leg? Right. Wouldn't you stop and go, oh, yeah? I guess what I'm saying, and this is going to sound super arrogant, but I'm just going to play devil's advocate yeah. here. 
the surgeon is in control of so many proximate events that nobody else is aware of that that happens like at every minutia level. In other words, like if you think that it's just a matter of right versus left, how about you took a little too much of the facet joint, right? So nobody else is going to tell the surgeon yeah. how much to take. It's not like the uh, the PA goes, oh, doctor, so-and-so, you're taking too much facet joint. They don't even know usually, right? So I guess my, my problem is the reliance on it, the sure. idea that we did the timeout, so now everything's good. Right. And I agree with that. And I, I guess my answer to you, the timeout isn't to assure everything's good. It's to make sure everything's good. And I'll give you an example, which is kind of probably not great, but I'll give it to you. Yesterday and I, I'm operating on, mm-hmm. and I, I'm like you, I'm kind of moving things along. Yeah, right. And my resident's trying to inject lidocaine before the anything happens. Right. So the anesthesiologist goes, allergies, lidocaine. Now, was it a real allergy? I'm like, sure it wasn't. But it's just like one of these things. It's like, well, if we rushed along, could have something bad happened. And so it's, it's, you know... We make so many mistakes. Any, I'm an advocate for anything we can do to reduce it. Can I add, since we're on the topic, and I just want to close with this because I think it's important in our healthcare system. You hear about this case that occurred about a month and a half ago with the, the nurse from Vanderbilt. The, the patient oh. was in the CT scanner, or MRI, I'm sorry, MRI, and had a subdural, I think. Yep. And she gave vecuronium instead yeah. of va- Val- Valium. Versed. 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 I'm sorry, Versed. Yep. So vecuronium, for people who don't know, is a paralytic. And um, Versed is a sedative. So the, obviously the patient was being sedated, but she paralyzed the person. She stopped breathing and died inside the MRI scanner. Yep. And they didn't have monitors on or anything like that. Yep. So now this nurse has been sentenced to prison. So this is a big thing in social media. So there's, this has gone back and forth. I'm not going to ask for your opinion on, like, obviously, this is a very complicated case. I'll, but I'll give you my opinion. Okay, give me, okay, give me your opinion. And, and, I'm not, and so this is absolutely horrible for healthcare. Right. And I, I don't know the details. I'll be the first one to say that, um, meaning I don't know what happened. Of this, case, of, of this case. Of this yeah, case. Of this but case. I will tell you this is, you know, one of the things we have to understand is, is you need to meet, you know, there's something called the Swiss cheese, yes. Swiss cheese theory. It means that no one person doesn't have holes. Right. And so you need to have multiple layers of Swiss cheese things in order to prevent an accident. Or an no direct hole right through the cheese. No, right, yeah. Exactly. So if you look at medical disasters, mm-hmm. it's never one individual. There's usually 9 to 13 mistakes that happened along the way. Not little mistakes, but big mistakes yeah. that cause a catastrophic thing. This individual, you know, obviously made a mistake. But the question is, is well, she's human. We're going to make mistakes. A system approach to this would be, well, why do you have vecuronium available to people in MRI unless there's something else available? I mean, that should be an anesthesia drug. It should be only when they're intubated. Second question is, okay, she gave them vecuronium. They should, and I don't know what happened in this case. I'm just saying, we're hypothetically talking about a case. The patient's pulse ox goes down. There was no monitor on. Right. That was one of the problems. But I'm just saying, but that's another issue. Yeah. So it, there's multiple process errors which happen in the MRI. So, so I like what you're saying because what you're saying is that someone like you who's empowered with this new knowledge base, skill set, looks at a problem like this or cases of sterilizing 10,000 trays for an ACDF and looks at how to make the process better, more efficient, and most importantly, safer, right? That's ultimately what you're doing. And, and I think one of the theories is, is come out of this is, you know, no one's at fault. And I don't think that's a true statement. I think if you do something egregious, for example, you want to, you do your surgery and you cut off the wrong leg, and everyone tells you that's not the right leg, that's egregious and wrong. And so the bigger things are, there's so many wheels turning, and humans are so flowable, and we have, you know, you, you just have to think about it. I was driving the other day, and... 
I was driving to, to Philadelphia. I drive the same way every day. Mm-hmm. I got into the freaking cash lane instead of the easy pass lane. Oh, for the tolls. For yeah. the tolls. Yeah. And I'm like, I have, it was just what they call a lapse, meaning that you go on autopilot. Mm-hmm. And, and when you do things of boredom, you kind of just go into these lapse mode. And unfortunately, there's, a, there's periods of, you know, peaks and valleys in our, our, our medical situations where unfortunately you can fall into a lapse. Now, is that, you know, good? No. But is it malicious? No. So I think we have to start looking at it, us as a team, and we have to sort of uh, make everything physician-proof or human-proof before we can start criticizing people. Well, Jim, I like what you're saying. The message is great. It's a good counterweight to the people getting the MBAs. Uh, Thank you again for being generous with your time and coming on our podcast. Mike, always great to see you and have fun in Philadelphia. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.